What's the difference then, the basic difference between a string of songs and a real musical? A story, obviously. I mean, but the songs, it's got to be the right song in the, in the right place. And it's, it, it's the construction of the music that is so very important. I mean, I, I enjoy uh, writing in a kind of operatic form, if, if I can, and not using that much dialogue really because that way I know I'm controlling the architecture of the music and, and the architecture of the evening. That was Andrew Lloyd Webber talking to my dad, David Frost, in 1991. Lloyd Webber is the most commercially successful theatre composer of all time. But more than that, he took the British musical and turned a cottage industry into a global phenomenon. His resume of musicals includes Phantom of the Opera, Cats, Evita, Jesus Christ Superstar, Joseph, Sunset Boulevard, School of Rock, and dozens more. Andrew Lloyd Webber was the first and is the only composer to have had three shows running simultaneously on Broadway and in the West End. He did it first in the 80s and he's been doing it constantly ever since. You may have seen at the end of the last century they made the list of the three most successful shows in any medium of all time. And the third most successful show was the movie Titanic, which had grossed $1.7 billion. The second most successful show was Cats, which had grossed $2.2 billion dollars and the most successful show was the phantom of the opera which had grossed 3.2 billion dollars since dad conducted that interview in 2000 those numbers have only grown phantom remains the highest grossing show of all time quite comfortably in fact raking in six billion dollars to date but nobody loved it more than dad i've taken here the uh the music of the night, because I just think that is a fantastic... Again, the boys and Karina would agree with me on this song. Dad would stop, close his eyes, and get totally lost in the music of the night whenever it came on. But far more than just being a fan, Dad and Andrew were incredibly close friends. Here is Andrew reflecting on that friendship in an ITV documentary shortly after Dad died in 2013. He was the opposite of a fair-weather friend. I mean, if I had something that would went wrong in my life or something went wrong in one's career or if one had a bad first night. You know, the phone never rings after a bad first night. When it did ring, it was always David. Andrew sat down for nine TV interviews with Dad, ranging from 1969 to 2007, three with Andrew sitting at his piano, where they discussed everything from how cats put him on the brink of financial ruin. My entire life was on the line. I mean, this very house which we were talking about was part of the collateral for the money for the show because we didn't have it. The origins of his most successful shows... I was in New York and I was one of those second-hand bookshops. I saw The Phantom of the Opera, 50 cents or something, you know, the Gaston Leroux book. And so I thought, well, I'm not doing anything much this afternoon. It was a Sunday. I'll buy it and I bought it and read it. And by the end of the evening, I realised that I'd found, you know, the next subject and how he wrote his greatest songs. I think of something with a tango. I mean, it had to have a, a lilt. I mean, have a, I mean, it had to have that quality in it. And it's, I mean, I, it, it, and, it, and I thought it must have a feminine ending to it. And it, and it started off much more sort of as a straight tango. And then I realized, well, of course it had that, it could be done as a much more, Number. I'm Wilfred Frost, and this is season two of The Frost Tapes. In this episode, the musical life of a West End and Broadway master, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Am I supposed to stand at the top of the stairs and say I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. Frost? Both of your parents were strong musical influences in different ways, weren't they? Yes, my mother was, um, uh, she was a teacher of um, actually young kids. She taught young children how to play the piano. 
Um, she didn't really teach me, but um, she was, I mean, very, very, very well known in London for doing exactly that. And my father was the director of the London College of Music. So there was music all around, and um, we had a pianist who uh, lived in our house called John Lill, who won the Tchaikovsky competition. Um, and he, he was a very, very fine performer. Uh, and so I got to learn, learn a lot of music. I used to, uh, you know, turn the pages for him and things when he was practicing and learning. Yeah. And of course, my brother Julian was a cellist, so there was music everywhere. Born in Kensington, London in 1942, Andrew Lloyd Webber grew up in a house of enormous musical talent. His mother, Jean, a pianist and violinist, was a music teacher. His father, William, was one of the most in-demand church organists in the country. And his brother, Julian, remains a world-renowned cellist today. Music everywhere. And in fact, were your child, childhood heroes from the world of music or architecture or what? I guess, um, I mean, look, I, I was like a lot of kids at the time. Um, I was a little bit too young for Elvis, I guess, but the Beatles were very much, uh, you know, my, my generation. And um, so I, I was very lucky. Again, my father believed that really there were only two kinds of music, really good and bad. And he would, was quite happy that what was played in the house was extremely broad, um, from musicals, of course, to pop, to rock and roll, to anything, and of course, to serious music. And so I, I, was, I was very much um, happy that my father just liked anything that was good. And then there was your Aunt Vi was a good influence too. She was a she, terrific, she was a wonderful fat lady who was a, you know, a, one of those larger than life theatre figures. And she was an actress herself, um, you know, and uh, she in the end, um, she knew an awful lot of people in the, in the theatre and it was all very glamorous for me. And she knew people like kind of Vida Hope who directed The Boyfriend and Ronald Neen, the film director and everything. And it was a complete different world for me. Um, very unlike my own, uh, my, uh, my parents' home. If Lloyd Webber's parents instilled a love of music, it was his Aunt Vi, short for Viola, who made him fall in love with the theatre. When he was a teenager, she took him to the West End to see shows like South Pacific and The King and I. He was spellbound. Tell me, going right back to the beginning, Andrew, what's the first tune that you can play now that you remember writing, and how old were you? Goodness, that's a really difficult one. Funnily enough, um, I had some music published when I was a little boy. Uh, called the Toy Theatre Suite, which my father got together for me. And uh, there was a song that surfaced in uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat many, many years later called Potiphar, which was just a very simple little tune. It was just... It was just... And it was just a little, a little kid's tune, and I used it again in... in and how old were you when you wrote that? I guess about eight, I suppose. Right. <laughs> It came in handy for Joseph anyway. That's the, only, that's the first one I can really remember. And there was one in Aspects of Love, which I always used to like, rather, which was very simple again, and it was round about the same time, which went like this. And was the short child song in Aspects. But it was just meant to be very, very innocent and simple. But it's amazing that both of those were able to spring to life in adult life as well. I mean, but I mean, did you know that you wanted to be? Did you? You told your mother when you were seven that you were going to devote your life to music. Is that right? I, um, I, I wasn't completely sure. I mean, I, I did love music and, and musical theatre in particular. I absolutely did. But I also was very interested in architecture and art and history. And I think for a long time. Um, it was a little bit of a sort of balance whether or not I would, in the end, want to become a historian or not. Um, but frankly, I mean, the music won out quite quickly. With music constantly playing in his house, Lloyd Webber found inspiration in a variety of styles. I have got so many composers I, I like. I guess, obviously, because I believe so strongly in melody that um, great melodists are people who I, I always particularly admire. So clearly, I mean, I love Richard Rogers. Um, I am a you know, great, great fan of Prokofiev. I think Prokofiev is one of the great melodists of the 20th century. Um, obviously, Gershwin, you know, um, it, it goes, goes right through. Um, I, I, wouldn't, I don't have one composer who I would say, above all, I absolutely, absolutely love. Obviously, I love Puccini, I love Verdi, I love Britain, uh, Shostakovich. You know, they're all, there are so many um, different composers. And of course, Paul McCartney. I mean, when McCartney um, was at his peak, I mean, you know, in the, in the great years, in the sort of the mid-60s, I mean, he was kind of almost without any peer as a melodist. Amazing what he wrote. Who was your greatest musical influence? 
Again, I mean, um, there, was, there were so many. But I, I cannot deny that I think of all of the theatre composers that at the end of the day, uh, Richard Rogers is the person who I, I most find extraordinary, really, for the complete uh, outpouring of melody that he, he produced. And, and often very, very simple, direct melodies. If you had to pick as an example, uh, what's an example of a perfect Rogers song? Well, Some Enchanted Evening, I would think. I mean, I mean it is as good as you're going to get, isn't it? I mean, it's the simplicity. It's about a, it's about almost a, I mean, it is a perfect melody. Mm. And funnily enough, you see, you take a, um, people may not uh, get this immediately, but something like Do, Re, Mi, I mean, the, just the blinding simplicity of, I mean, you see, I mean, you might say, well, I mean, it sounds like nothing, but nobody else has written it. Mm. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's it. I mean, it's, it's just such a simple, simple yeah. idea. And the guy was a complete genius. As a teenager, Lloyd Webber did write a few musicals, but he quickly learned that writing lyrics was not his strength. So when he went off to university, he was on the lookout for a creative partner. How did you meet up with Tim Rice, in fact? I mean, were, were you already at Oxford when you heard about him? or he I had, about I'd already, Actually, I was still at Westminster. Um, at school, but I got into Oxford at that point. We met uh, for a bit and sort of really more or less socially, we didn't actually write anything very much. Then I went up to Oxford and I got myself involved with having, doing this musical and uh, I couldn't find a lyricist and I thought, Tim. And I remember Tim writing the lyrics for the first time and thinking, goodness, I mean, this is, this is pure gold. I've never seen anything like these. Those, they were funny and they, he had a turn of phrase which I'd never seen in anybody else. It was the beginning of a fruitful relationship. With Lloyd Webber, just 17, and Rice at 20, they formed a creative partnership that would last for more than 50 years and create some of the biggest hits of the century. Had you really written musicals before that? I'd written some perfectly ghastly musicals which had been done at school and things. So I had actually done, I had um, three shows of mine before I met Tim had actually made it to a stage of some kind. But of course, meeting Tim did change everything. We met. Uh, talked a lot about pop and talked about music and musicals. But um, we didn't actually write for about a year. And then we, and then we, then we collaborated, and once I'd started with him, that was that, really. And, the, and you did one musical that never got produced, didn't you? We did a musical about the life of Dr. Bernardo, who was a sort of English philanthropist of the 19th century, um, which was sort of in the uh, British Oliver School. Um, everybody, after the huge success of Oliver, uh, wanted to write musicals about uh, jolly cockneys in the East End of London. And so Tim and I did. Mercifully, um, Dr. Bernardo, or the likes of us, as it was called, never made it to the stage. Um, and so it's uh, was a closely guarded secret. So your reputation was saved. And the, and the, first, the first big collaboration was? Well, the first one was uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which was written for, for a school. It was written for a bunch of kids um, to perform. Um, we never really thought anything very much would happen with it, but we'd not had anything of ours performed at that time. And so we thought, well, why not? But what we were unprepared for was that the father of one of the kids in the choir was in fact the critic for the Sunday Times. And I mean, we had no means of knowing this. And uh, it was done on this Friday afternoon at the school, and then it, was, it went well, so they did it again. And this was a vaguely public performance, and he went to it. And a week later, in the London Sunday Times, there was this rave review. It's about the last rave review we've ever had, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but what a, what a stroke of good fortune. That's wonderful. Well, it was, but I mean, um, it, it was one of those things. I mean, and Joseph really took off from there. That first production, performed at Collet Court School in London in 1968, only earned Lloyd Webber and Rice a tiny advance. But the money didn't matter. The song, a 15-minute cantata about the coat of many colours from the Old Testament, was getting requests across London. And with each request, the songwriting team extended the work to 20 minutes, then 30, then 40. Suddenly, it was on the verge of becoming a full musical. As producers in New York began making plans for Joseph on Broadway, Rice and Lloyd Webber began working on a new concept. Did Superstar come out of it logically of from one biblical thing to another, or is that a coincidence? It is, it, it is a coincidence. I mean, I think Tim Rice was intrigued about doing the story of, um, of Jesus, the last seven days of Jesus' life, but he wanted to do it from the point of view of Judas Iscariot. 
really. I mean, the piece should be Judas Iscariot superstar. It's not, yeah. it, but, but that's, that's how he, he, he was always fascinated by that Bob Dylan line about uh, did Judas Iscariot have God on his side? And that's where Tim, I think, sort of began. Um, and also, I suppose, because Joseph had been done in places like St. Paul's Cathedral by that time, um, I remember the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral was very, very enthusiastic that we should go on with it. And in fact, um, he was one of the earliest people to endorse it, um, along with your good self, of course, because it was back in 1969. Lloyd Webber is referring to the fact that in 1969, parts of Jesus Christ Superstar were performed live on the Frost program. The publicity that followed not only helped him launch the show into a full-blown musical, but would also spark a lifelong friendship between Dad and Andrew. In fact, they would become such good friends that by the time my brothers and I arrived, we'd go on holiday with the LWs religiously every year throughout my childhood. But more on that later. Back when Lloyd Webber was first appearing on the Frost program, Jesus Christ Superstar wasn't yet a stage play. In 1969, he couldn't get any backing to produce the show for the theater, so just released an album of tracks instead. And the strategy worked. By 1971, the album would be transformed into a rock opera and would open on Broadway. Praise followed. That year, Lloyd Webber won the Drama Desk Award for Most Promising Composer, and by his mid-twenties, he was starting to make inroads with producers across the world of theatre. More importantly, he began honing his music writing process. I've been talking to people um, about coming to see you today, uh, and the thing that must seem an incredibly basic question, but that nobody seems to know the answer to, how do you compose? I mean, what happens? What starts it off? Is there a pattern to the process? I mean, is it an inspiration? I mean, how does a song it's, it's, come about? It sounds sort of either evasive or wimpy or something. To actually say, I don't really know. Um, I, mean, I, I can remember um, when I wrote um, The First Man You Remember, which is from Aspect. I was just playing around on the piano, and I just, I just, and I just sort of thought to myself, um, fine, you know, went off and made some coffee. I suddenly thought, God, what was that I was playing? And you know, often I just play, you know, and I, I play for fun. I just play any old, any old thing, and I'm sort of doodling around and sitting here for an hour. And suddenly I'll say to myself, actually, that's a good phrase. And I just probably found by accident. And what do you do to make sure you don't forget it? Do you write it down on one of these Well, I write it down as quickly as possible these days, because <laughs> the brain is now going. I, I used to rely on a completely different system, which is that if I ever remembered it, um, it must be all right, which is actually not a bad system. But I do write, do write things down, I must admit now. That was 1991, and a few years later, Andrew would experiment with using electric keyboards that would automatically save his work as he wrote it. An experiment that was short-lived after two young teenagers inadvertently deleted his latest composition while fooling around on his equipment during a holiday at his house in Ireland. <clears throat> Those two teenagers will remain nameless. Which comes first? Always the music? Always the lyrics? No, no set pattern? No set pattern really since Cats. I now tend to do it a bit of both ways. If you get um, a great title from somebody, sometimes, sometimes that uh, triggers it off. But there's always the, there's always the, um, you know, the added ingredient of, uh, of the lyric. I mean, I don't write lyrics, obviously. <clears throat> so if the lyric does go very badly wrong, which sometimes can happen, I mean, then, then you have to sort of bank the song and bury it and hope that uh, you know, use it again someday. Lloyd Webber is notorious for doing just that, writing a melody and then holding on to it for months, years, decades even, until the right lyrics come along. One great example was from Jesus Christ Superstar, the song sung by Mary Magdalene, I Don't Know How to Love Him. Originally, the composer had written it for a completely different musical about Kansas. I believe that started life as a song called Kansas Morning. Wasn't yes, it did. It had a terrible look, something kind of like a... I think it was sort of, how did it go now? Is I long for Kansas morning. <laughs> Kansas eyes come to greet me. And the wind, something really awful. Uh, the endless sun or something, you know. How did it go on? It was a thing about, I can see you now, you're flying high. Kansas on the brain. 
I'm trapped in rain. Something I really oh, for. That's I, fascinating. Um, and God, thank God, I, I know I've been in another incarnation as well. Um, that I really can't remember. How did I sort of... No, perhaps it didn't. It, it, but this, Kansas Morning, was a bid for the American market, I think was it was, it? yes, an unsuccessful bid for a wider public, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Your next uh, hit musical, lyrics by Tim again, was, of course, uh, Evita. That was his passion. The idea came from him, didn't it? Evita, like Jesus Christ Superstar, started as a studio album, not as a stage musical. The storyline followed the life and death of the Argentine political leader, Eva Perón. When Tim Rice first came to Lloyd Webber with the idea, he declined it and instead decided to work on a different musical called Jeeves, which was a relative flop at the time. When Tim first suggested the idea of doing The Life of Eva Perón, um, I, was, I was a little bit dubious, to be honest with you, because I, I, I mean, I hadn't really heard of her. Um, I sort of knew her face from stamp collecting or something like that. <laughs> um, but I had, I had no idea. And of course, Tim being very, is a very typical Tim Rice story, this. What had happened was is that he, there was a program on the BBC about teenage idols, and there was a, a Jimmy Dean, James Dean was one of them. And at the end of it, we happened to be in the car together, it said, next week, Ava Perron. And so Tim was intrigued. And of course, once he heard the story, he thought, well, we ought to look into this. I think that probably Evita was written, although Tim and I didn't really realize it necessarily, but as a bit of a reaction to what was going on in Britain at the time anyhow. Because of course in the early 70s we had that moment where the government had been overthrown, um, there was talk of even private armies, were there not, you know, if you, and Britain was going very sour. And I think what um, Tim was setting out to do was to uh, write a cautionary tale about extremism and making the very good point that you know, an attractive extremist is about the most dangerous thing you can get. And that's what, of course, that piece is really about. Mm. But I think um, a, a good, strong story is, um, is the most important thing. The result was a Laurence Olivier Award for Best New Musical and three Tony Awards for Best Original Score, Best New Book and Best Musical. The whole production was a triumph, but the song that truly carried it and is recognisable everywhere today was Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. Don't Cry For Me... The, the, the handle on that, what I had to find, was something that um, could become almost like an anthem. And then I remembered, um, in the mid-60s, I saw Judy Garland in the Talk of the Town in London. And it was the time when poor thing, I mean, she was really at the end of her career and everything possible could be wrong. I don't know what kind of state she was in when she sang that night, but she could hardly get through the performance. And she did Over the Rainbow, and... The audience, frankly, um, were throwing coins on the stage. I'm something I've never seen before because she was late and she was out of it, and you know. And there was um, this song. I mean, this icon song, one of the greatest songs ever written, um, being sung by the artist who made it famous, and it turned on her. I mean, it, it, it had come to just completely destroy her. And I just always remembered that moment, and I thought, well, if I can find a melody and I can do the same thing uh, in Evita, and I could, uh, then then I'm halfway there. So obviously we had the song as the big anthem and she's right at the top of her, uh, you know, command of her powers and addressing the audience. And then the end, it's the song which she sings in the final broadcast that is just before her death. And that's how it started. And I, I mean, I think all songs, I, I really do think that one of the things people don't realise about musical theatre is, is that you could have a fantastic song, a really wonderful, wonderful song, but it could be in the wrong show, in the wrong place, or constructed wrongly, or part of a construction that doesn't work, and that song will be lost for lost forever. How did you write it? I had to think of something with a tango. I mean, it had to have a, a lilt. I mean, have a. I mean, it had to have that quality in it. And it's, so, I mean, I. It, it, and, it, and I thought it must have a feminine ending to it. And it, and it started off much more sort of as a straight tango. And then I realised, well, of course, it had that. It could be done as a much more romantic number. And then it suddenly came to me that it, we needed an anthem. We could find something which Tim could hang an idea on that is something that she could be saying to a large number of people. Then, then we'd be there. 
Avita ran for 10 years on the West End and helped make Lloyd Webber a household name. It also gave him the boosts he needed to try something completely new, something that would shake the world of theatre. And then we're coming on from there to the time of Cats, which was a which was a turning point in many ways, it wasn't a vital turning point in your life. Based on poems that T.S. Eliot had written for his Godchildren, a collection called Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, the musical was unlike anything audiences had ever experienced. But it was also full of timeless hits, including Memory, though according to Lloyd Webber, the tune wasn't even supposed to be in Cats at all. When you wrote it, you it had come to you so naturally that you went to your father to check it out. Well, no, actually, it's a slightly longer story than that. I had this idea about the writing a fun opera, or just, I mean, just a spoof opera, about the writing of La Bohème. Now, you, people may or may not know that there are two versions of La Bohème. Uh, there's one by Leon Cavallo, um, who uh, got rave reviews for his piece, yeah. and uh, Puccini, of course, who got awful reviews for his book. And I had this idea that what we could do is an opera which would be all about the outtakes of... There would be one tune, which at the very end of the conceit was, is that Puccini would have said, well, if that tune had been allowed by my publisher to have been in La Bohème, La Bohème would have been a hit. Um, well, uh, that tune was memory. And that's why memory does sound quite Puccini-esque, I mean, because it was meant to. Because my father was the... I mean, one of the, I suppose, most famous Puccini experts in Britain. I went to go and see him, and I said, Dad, I said, uh, what does this tune sound like to you? I said, it isn't anything else, is it? And he said, I'll tell you what it sounds like. I said, it sounds like $20 million. <laughs> <laughs> so, there was life in the world. Another <laughs> underestimate. <laughs> An underestimate of about $3.3 billion, to be exact. Midnight, not a sound from the pavement. Has the moon lost her memory? She is smiling alone. But anyway, it laid, it laid, I mean, forever and ever and ever. I mean, I, I never thought that it was going to go into cats at all. Um, and. Um, we, when we were putting together Cats as a stage show, which was, a, it was obviously a pretty unusual show, to put it mildly, um, based on a whole load of poems, of course, which had been written long before. And uh, Trevor Nunn, our director, uh, said, we just do need to have something which is a real hook to, where we can have a kind of triumphant moment um, for our character, Grisabella, because Grisabella was the key to the whole thing. Someone Grisabella was never in Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, but the fragment about Grisabella was in a letter and a couple of poems that um, Valerie Elliott, T.S. Elliott's widow, gave to me. And of course, with Grisabella, we suddenly found that we had a story which we could, and there was a sort of an idea for a story which Elliott himself had. And we, that's, that's really how it all came together. But we needed that thing, and I played it to Trevor, and Trevor said, I'm having that one. And um, that's how it got to be in Cats. In fact, it opened. I mean, it changed your life in lots of ways. It was without Tim Rice and so on, but also it was without part of its investment when it opened, wasn't it? Frankly, my entire life was on the line. Mm. I mean, this very house which we were talking about was part of the collateral for the money for the show because we didn't have it. Um, and uh, we actually opened with half our investment missing. And in fact, so, so much crisis was there about Cats that uh, you went and prayed, didn't you, with Cameron? Cameron is Sir Cameron Mackintosh, known for producing everything from Les Mis to Hamilton. Well, there is a story that Cameron and I did go off to a church in order to sort of... Um, pick well, you would know whether this is true. ...with the spirit of T.S. Eliot. It's quite true, but we went to the wrong one. Actually, we did want to go to um, discover um, T.S. Eliot's memorial in black and everything, and, um, and we went to the wrong place. <laughs> So but, you, were, you were praying to T.S. Eliot more than to God at that point, were you? Well, I think we were just, just pray to anybody. I mean, it didn't, <laughs> didn't really matter. 
but you got the right show. And uh, and it was it was through Cats actually, and 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 not just after Cats that you met Sarah, your second wife, Sarah Brightman. At the time, Sarah Brightman was an unknown in the world of musical theatre, and Andrew Lloyd Webber was still married to his first wife, Sarah Hugill. Sarah Brightman uh, sang the little uh, cat, the young cat, in, in uh, memory. Uh, the, that's, that's the first time I really heard her singing. She'd had a big, big, uh, you know, run of pop hits in Britain uh, before, but purely as a pop singer. Nobody could understand why she wanted to be in Cats. It was very peculiar, um, but she did, and uh, she, that was what she did. But I, I didn't, um, I, I didn't really get to know Sarah outside of the just obviously knowing her as a cast member, but I didn't really get to know her for about two years after that, easily. You went to see something called Nightingale or something? Well, yes, this was the thing. I mean, I, I, it's a bit of a confession to make, but um, I never really thought at that time that she was particularly interesting as a singer. I, I suddenly was uh, idly leafing through my London Times, or as one does, and uh, followed by my London Evening Standard, and there were these absolutely ecstatic reviews for Sarah Brightman in a show called Nightingale, which was written by Charlie Strauss, who wrote Annie. So I thought I'd better go and see this. I mean, because I thought there's a great gap in my vocabulary. What had happened was that Cameron McIntosh had let her out of the show, out of Cats, to do this, um, on condition that she signed on to Cats for another few months or something, a, a typical kind of Cameron trade-off deal. That. Yeah. Um, and I went to see Sarah, and I was completely overwhelmed. I, I just couldn't believe that, there was, that, that, that this girl in the company, you know, had all of this, that had this voice. So um, I said, well, we're gonna have to work on something together. And that is where it began. It was where the professional and personal relationship began. Sarah and Andrew became romantically involved, and Andrew set out writing musicals with his new love interest in mind. The result? Phantom of the Opera. Phantom of the Opera was not originally Lloyd Webber's idea. In 1976, Ken Hill wrote the first musical version of Phantom, which recycled tunes by classical composers like Verdi and Gounod. In 1984, the show was due to play in Newcastle. Well, what it was, was, was that um, somebody approached Sarah and said, would she be interested in playing the role of Christine in a version of the Phantom of the Opera? And it was up in, uh, going to be done in Newcastle in the north of England. And um, Sarah was just about to get married to me and she didn't really fancy the idea at all. It was going to be a version of The Phantom which was going to use real opera, you see, um, and put into whatever story it was. Um, and anyway, we, it came to London, this piece, obviously not with Sarah in it. And Cameron Mackintosh and I thought we'd, be just, we'd just go and have a look at it out of curiosity. And we, we found um, a sort of rather campy, jokey piece with these bits of real opera in it. And frankly, we... we, we didn't really think that, that much of it, or, or particularly as a story. A year later, um, I was in New York, and I was one of those second-hand bookshops. I saw The Phantom of the Opera, 50 cents or something, you know, the Gaston Leroux book. And so I thought, well, I'm not doing anything much this afternoon. It was a Sunday. I'll buy it, and I bought it and read it. And by the end of the evening, I realized that I'd found, you know, the next subject. It was so different, I couldn't believe it. It was nothing like this stage show. It was, it was a confused book. Well, it is a confused book. It can't make up its mind whether it's a horror story, whether it's a love story, whether it's a detective story, or, what, or a history story. Um, but um, it's got the elements in there. Um, and, and the one thing that I picked up on, which was, well, I suppose because that's what I was looking to write, was the high romance. Lloyd Webber started to work on his own version of Phantom, which would eventually debut in 1986. As with Lloyd Webber's previous works, it contained tunes that once had very different lives. I'll never forget the first time I saw Phantom and uh, Michael Crawford and Sarah in that particular production here in London. Uh, I was particularly hit by Music of the Night. But I gather it didn't begin life as well, music of the night. It began life um, as a song which was written for Sarah. Um, it was a song called Married Man. And uh, I, 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 it, was, it was all written round about me because, I mean, I, 
I, what really found him is, is it, it was the romantic side of me that, for example, I could never let loose in something like a Vita, being able to run riot. And uh, I'd been looking for a piece like that at the same time. And I wrote this, this high romance, romantic song for, um, for Sarah, um, but with lyrics by Trevor Nunn. <laughs> and really? It never stayed as Married Man because everybody said to me, Andrew, you cannot write a song when Sarah wasn't even married to me, when I was married at the time about a girl having an affair with a married man. So it's a lyric as married man um, um, actually survived a very short time. I personally disagree with everybody. I thought it was really a very good song and I thought she did it splendidly. I thought she had real chutzpah to get up in front of everybody and do it. In many ways, Phantom was Lloyd Webber's love letter to his new wife, who'd play the lead role of Christine. Turn your face away from the garish light of day. Turn your Obviously, there was the, the whole personal side of what we're with Phantom. Yeah. I mean, I did write it. I mean, no secret. I wrote it for Sarah. And, um, you know, she, I, I think still for me, um, when she was at her absolute peak then, I, I mean, I don't think anybody has really got near her. But, um, but, but, I mean, although we've had some wonderful Christines, but of course she was so much a part of it all. I find, funnily enough, uh, it quite hard to hear somebody else singing, wishing you were somehow here again, other than Sarah, because uh, she was—it was—it was something that was very personal to both. Which of one? Us there. Was that? Well, that's wishing in Phantom, you know. And, um, of course, I mean, um, in, a, in a way, I, I always think that's her song. That song also has a great deal of meaning to my family as well. Andrew played Wishing at the piano during the memorial service for my late older brother, Miles, who died in 2015. It's a moment that has resonated with us ever since. Phantom, of course, is one of the shows that just sticks with people. In 2000, Dad asked Lloyd Webber why he thinks the musical has such staying power. I think, with hindsight, I think this is possibly why the Phantom, in the end, is the character who everybody relates to so much in the piece. And I hadn't really realised this when I was writing it, but that, it's, that it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're the most fantastic model girl in the world or the best-looking man and this, that and the other, there's always something about your body that you don't like or want to change. That's why people fiddle around with them all the time. And I think that's why people have an empathy with the Phantom. Obviously, there's the, the music and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of real love and passion in there. As I said you know, earlier, there, I mean, one of the reasons I was looking for um, a, a, a big romantic subject was that there was a lot of romance in me that I'd really kept under wraps for a long time. And so, I mean, I, I just went for broke. Perhaps the most romantic of songs in Phantom was All I Ask of You. I suppose All I Ask of You, I, I'm, I suppose I'm, I'm very pleased with that because... I heard it the other day somewhere, and I thought, my goodness, actually, for the first time, I did think, well, that, that is a good tune. I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's very me as well. You see, because it's, it's, the, the intervals are. I mean, all the intervals are very me. I mean, it's that the drop, you know. A lot of people would do that. Hmm. Well, it, it all fits together. The late 1980s saw Phantom become a worldwide phenomenon, but the fairy tale of Lloyd Webber's and Brightman's would not outlast it. In 1990, the two would separate, and Lloyd Webber would find himself in love with somebody outside of the world of show business, a horse rider named Madeline Gurdon. In 1991, the year they were married, Dad briefly sat down with Madeline to learn more about their relationship. There was a certain intrigue from both of us, certainly from me, because obviously Andrew I'd known of for ages, and so I was intrigued to meet him. I knew exactly who he was, and 
Um, and there was a certain, I think, intrigue from his point of view because he hadn't really met a horsey sort of 27-year-old lady ever before. But we got on really straight away. When was the moment when it all changed, as it were, for you? From friendship <laughs> to love? Well, it's very difficult because I think it was probably much sooner than I ever admitted to myself. Because I always thought, well, no, obviously it's just friends. But it probably in my own mind, if I'd really been honest to myself, it was much earlier on in the year. But it, as it was, he was a married man, let's face it, and there wasn't any point falling in love with a married man. Um, and then, you know, th things developed, and, you know, later on in the year, I sort of did admit it to myself. Andrew and Madeline have been together for 30 years. They have three children, Al, Billy and Bella, adding to Andrew's first two children, Nick and Imo, with his first wife, Sarah Hugill. As a family, they remain very good friends of ours. In particular, Andrew and Madeline are amazing, supportive and loyal friends to mum. And my brother George and I are immensely grateful for that. And when he's composing, as opposed to whatever the reverse of it is, mm. decomposing, um, the, or whatever it is. <laughs> Love the, that. Uh, does his mood change? Does he get uh, laser beamed in, uh, into what he's, tunnel vision into what he's working on? Yes. Suddenly you'll, you'll see a sort of glazed expression in his eyes when you're talking to him and you know that he's not listening to you at all. But, you know, he's, he's concentrating on what's going on in his mind. He does most of the composing in his mind, I think. And then tinks away on the piano, but it doesn't last very long. But it, it's, it's not something you can predict. It can happen at any stage, any time in the middle of a dinner party or middle of a restaurant or the middle of the night, whenever. But I can now sort of assess it and know what's going through his mind a little bit and just leave him alone. While, like Dad, my favourite of his musicals is Phantom, a close second for me is Sunset Boulevard. In 1993, Andrew joined Dad just before the show was released to discuss how he wrote the title song, With One Look, that so captured the story of the show's lead, Norma Desmond, an ageing film star who refuses to accept her time in the spotlight has passed. Now let's take an example of the song from the show, like the one we're about to hear in a minute, uh, With One Look. How does, people are fascinated by this, how does a song like that, a tune like that, start in your mind? Well, Did it see, start with one particular phrase? You, you mentioned phrase? the one we just heard, which goes... Well, that came out of the idea of the moment when Norma Desmond comes to the studio and she thinks she's going back to be a great star again. But what we know is that they don't want her they only want an old car that she owns. And it's one of the saddest moments. Mm. And, and it's one of those things, and you, you know, and that's why so many years ago, I just knew it's a, a, a and the, good thing And so I that song then started with that I, phrase, and, those phrases. Well, yes, and I just the idea of, I don't know why I'm frightened. And she knows she's come back, or she thinks she's come back. It's, it's, a, it's a gift to anybody, that. Um, with One Look, which is uh, uh, the song that Barbara Streisand's recorded, comes out of the moment where she uh, comes, she, the writer, there's a, the story is that a young writer turns up at her house by mistake and he doesn't realise who she is or what it is, but at one moment says, God, you, you're Norma Desmond, aren't you? You're the old silent movie star. You are, a, you are a great star. And that's the moment she says, I am big, it's the pictures that got small. Right. Well, now, that one line... One of the great lines. That... I mean, if you can't then think of a song which is about somebody saying, well, it's not, it's not words, it's its eyes and, and, and how you look, and then, really, frankly, you should be in another profession. I mean, uh, and, and so, so you started that one So with... I started off with the idea that it's got to be something to do with a look. And so the, the title came, I mean, which is quite simple. And it has to be able to soar. comes from a dramatic situation. I mean, th there is no point in anybody ever getting involved with the musical unless what you do is you look at the situation and let the song come from it. Sometimes you may have written a song sometime years ago or something um, which fits that situation, but the situation must rule the song, always. Fascinatingly, two years earlier, Andrew would explain to Dad how the seeds for that song were starting to form in his head. At the moment, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to write a new show um, and uh, that's the story of Sunset Boulevard, the old film that Gloria Swanson was the star of. I mean, I don't yet know what I'm going to 
come up with. I think I know kind of stylistically what kind of world it should inhabit, but I haven't yet really written anything very much for it. But I've got a few ideas. And What have you written for it so far? What have I written for it so far? Uh, they're all fragments at the moment. I don't know. You see, I, I, I have a feeling it's got to inhabit a kind of world of... It's that strange house, so something's got to be... Uh, these are only just little ideas. I think that could be... something very sometimes fairly angular and strange I think I have an idea for what I think she which I think will be a great this I think will be a big song I have to tell you Today, as the most commercially successful composer of all time, Lloyd Webber faces his fair share of pressure and scrutiny. Everybody says about your shows that now, now you are, the shows are now critic-proof. But are you, as a sensitive human being, well, are, you, are you personally critic-proof? Or I do they hurt sometimes? To, 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 to deal with the first thing, uh, no, they aren't critic-proof. I mean, I think we're about to see that something like Aspects of Love, which, uh, let's face it, is a much more delicate piece, it's not been able to su survive, you know, the scud missiles of Frank Rich. If you're told all the time by somebody, week in, week out, and it so happens to be in a powerful paper that it's no, no good, it's appalling, well, people tend to believe it. So I don't think I'm critic-proof. Um, I, I, I suppose the only thing that I do sometimes get hurt by is that there is a lobby of American criticism, crit critics, who don't really believe, or they don't want to believe, that musical theatre is actually my passion. They sort of think I'm somebody who just does it, happens to be lucky, and it is commercially successful, and can just take, and, and sort of almost like comes in like a thief and raids his money out of, out of America and takes it all away again. But in actual fact, I care passionately about musicals. I, I live and breathe and eat the things. And that, that you know, you, you could, if you applied some of the kind of criticisms that are applied to me to, say, Stephen Sondheim, you could equally well take apart any of his shows because nothing, no work, whether it be art or not, you know, is actually 100% flawless. If you take Phantom, for example, I mean, it's sold six million double album sets, which is probably more than any pop record around at the moment. And that's more people buying the record for its music than can possibly have yet seen the show. So I console myself with that a lot of the time. David Land was quoted in the Financial Times as saying, what drives him? Is it posterity? Is it, what is it? I never think of that. Hmm. I don't know. I, 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 I don't know what, uh, what makes me want to, to write. I mean, probably in the end is boredom. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do if you didn't? Exactly. Dad's final interview with Andrew was in 2007. Since then, he's composed and produced multiple new musicals from School of Rock to Love Never Dies, become enormously famous to a new generation in the UK via a series of musical talent shows on the BBC, and become one of just 16 people ever to become an EGOT, that is to win an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar and Tony, when he added an Emmy for Jesus Christ Superstar Live on NBC in 2018 to his Oscar, four Grammys and eight Tony Awards. Last summer, he released his latest musical, Cinderella. The show's release was delayed multiple times during 2020 and 2021 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Andrew, so passionate about live theatre, volunteered to be part of the trial for the Oxford University vaccine at the peak of the pandemic, and in fact joined me on my show at the time, Closing Bell on CNBC, to talk about it in November 2020. Why did you put yourself forward in the first place? Well, as you probably know, I've been fighting to uh, get theatres reopened, and indeed all forms of indoor music spaces uh, up and down not only just Britain, but all over America and the world. And um, because I really tried to absolutely bang the drum for live entertainment, it seemed to me that the very least I could do is I don't live that very far from Oxford, was to volunteer as an oldie uh, to, uh, to be see, see if I could be accepted onto the trial. But I would stress one thing. I'm a theatre animal. And um, I don't believe you can really, really ever have a substitute for the live experience of that extraordinary thing when you go to the theatre and you know that that performance is just for you and the other members of the audience. I just don't think you can uh, replicate that. Um, so 
my concentration has really been to get theatre back open again. I did record the whole of the album of Cinderella um, at home in lockdown, and it reminds me a little bit of Jesus Christ Superstar 50 years ago, which I couldn't get on stage because nobody wanted to put it on stage. And so it was recorded first. And now I've had to record Cinderella first because I can't get it on stage. <laughs> it's a sort of irony. Cinderella finally opened to a slew of five-star reviews in August 2021. I was lucky enough to be there on opening night, and my brother George and I looked at each other at curtain call and both uttered the words we know Dad would have been saying to Andrew had he been there. Maestro, you've done it again. We end with Andrew at the piano, surprising me and perhaps you with his answer to what his favourite composition was back in 2000. I don't know. I mean, uh, obviously there was the, the whole personal side of it with Phantom. Yeah. Um, but, no, I mean, I, I, mean, I have to say that of, of, every composer has their own um, favourites, except that they're all in one sense, they're all your own babies, and yes. so you, you can't really say that one is a favourite. But I guess if I had one that um, I myself would play, I, I, I think it would be Aspects of Love. Which tune in particular? I mean, one of my favourites is a song called Seeing is Believing, which is... That's a very sweet tune, but I mean, it, and, and that, that is very passionate. Andrew Lloyd Webber, thank you very much indeed. Thank you all for joining us. Until the next time, goodbye for now. In the next episode of The Frost Tapes, one of the most talented and famous actors of the 20th century, Elizabeth Taylor. I said, Mr. Mayor, you and your studio can go to hell. And I ran out of the room. In the Frost Tapes is a production of Paradine Productions and Chalk and Blade. Executive producers are Wilfred Frost, George Frost, Laura Sheeta, Ruth Barnes and Nigel Sinclair. Produced by Lily Ames and Rosie Stouffer. Written by Lucas Riley and Wilfred Frost. Sound design and mixing by Alex Portfelix and Matt Nielsen. Music composed by Pascal Wise. With special thanks to David Peck at Reeling in the Years Productions, to White Horse Pictures and Desert Island Discs at BBC Radio 4.